Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 423rd edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting across the world in this, our ninth year, from Charleston in South Carolina, one of the great cities in the U.S. South and one that's really steeped in history. We're all worried about climate change and uh, a secretive startup has just achieved an incredible solar breakthrough aimed at saving the planet. Heliogen, a clean energy company, has emerged from stealth mode and says it has discovered a way to issue, to use, to use artificial intelligence and a field of mirrors to reflect so much sunlight that it generates extreme heat above 1,000 degrees Celsius. That is a major big deal. One of the problems with a lot of manufacturing industry is that um, with new, new, well, not really new, but with um, alternative energy, there hasn't been able to generate enough heat to do the processes required. But this is the first time we've got anywhere near a 1,000 degrees. So essentially, Heliogen's created a solar oven one that's capable of reaching temperatures that are roughly a quarter of what you'd find on the surface of the sun. For the first time, concentrated solar energy can be used to create the extreme heat that's needed for things like cement and steel and glass and a whole range of other industrial processes. And these processes have been pumping CO2 into the atmosphere at an alarming rate with no end in sight. Well, this provides that end. In other words, carbon-free sunlight can replace fossil fuels in a heavy carbon-emitting corner of the economy that's been untouched by the clean energy revolution. We're actually rolling out technology that can beat the price of fossil fuels and also not make CO2 emissions. So, you know, one of the arguments for fossil fuels is that they're inexpensive or they're cheap. But um, Heliogen has found that using sunlight can produce even cheaper energy. Now, Heliogen's patented technology will enable us to dramatically reduce greenhouse gas emissions from industry. Now, this is an incredible statistic. Cement, just cement on its own, accounts for 7% of global CO2 emissions. 7% just from cement alone, according to the International Energy Agency. So this breakthrough will allow cement makers to transition away from fossil fuels. The company uses artificial intelligence an array of mirrors to create vast amounts of heat. So they're essentially harnessing the power of the sun. And unlike traditional solar power, which uses rooftop panels, as you know, you see them every day, to capture the energy from the sun, Heliogen is improving on what's known as concentrated solar power. In the past, 
concentrated solar power couldn't get temperatures anywhere near hot enough to make cement and steel. But artificial intelligence has now made this possible. Renewable energy has not yet disrupted industrial processes such as cement and steel making, yet the world has an insatiable appetite for these materials. You think of everything that's being built everywhere has either cement or steel, every city, every building almost. And these industries collectively are responsible for more than 20% of global emissions. You know, we're talking about reducing the... um, contribution of the of people of humans and that's only about five to seven percent so this is three times more than the co2 um, emitted by every human on the planet so using artificial intelligence to solve the climate crisis means its capacity to achieve the high temperatures required is a promising development in the quest to be able to very soon replace fossil fuel you know, this, and this is going to also show some countries like the United States where the government, well, the administration anyway, is um, a big fossil fuel supporter and is not really assisting um, renewable energy. Governments like the Australian government, which is all about fossil fuels and is not doing anything to um, encourage um, renewable energy. It's going to make life difficult for those countries. Now, Hillegen, founded by a guy named Bill Gross, must convince industrial companies it's worth the investment to switch over to its solar technology. It uses computer vision software, automatic edge detection and other sophisticated technologies to train a field of mirrors to reflect solar beams to one single spot. And that generates this extreme heat. Hillegen is generating so much heat that its technology could be used to create clean hydrogen at scale. Now, that'll be really interesting because that will enable um, hydrogen cars, hydrogen trucks, hydrogen airplanes um, to run inexpensively and carbon free. And it'd be a lot less expensive than um, the systems that are used, like battery systems that are used in cars like Tesla. Now, one problem with solar is that, and the argument that people that are not that bright use, like our president, for example, is that it doesn't always shine. The sun is not out every day. So they assume that when the sun's not out, we're not going to get any power. Yet in just and you know people like industrial companies like cement makers, they need constant heat. They can't just work when it's sunny. So Hillegen's solved that issue by relying on storage systems that can hold all the solar energy that they produce, and they want to scale as fast as possible. After the large scale application, Hillegen, I bet, will go public. Hillegen's biggest challenge will be convincing industrial companies using fossil fuel to make the investment that's required to um, switch over. The company says it's been talking to potential customers privately and is getting results and will soon announce its first customers and they're all 
big guys. And its biggest selling point is the fact that unlike fossil fuels like coal and oil and natural gas, sunlight costs nothing. It's there. And Halogen argues its technology is already economical against fossil fuels because of the reliance on artificial intelligence. Now, this is really a game changer for addressing climate change. Do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've now got about 1.7, 1.8 million daily subscribers. It takes just 30 seconds to a minute and a half to read every day. And every day we tackle the different subjects. We talk about AI. We talk about new uh, advances in medicines. We talk about new apps, new technology, things like Hyperloop and autonomous cars and blockchain Um, artificial intelligence I mentioned before. So we talk about those every day. And tomorrow's newsletter discusses how in the late 1990s, Pizza Hut was an innovation powerhouse. You'll remember that they created things like stuffed crust and uh, Bigfoot. Now Domino's is eating its lunch. Why did this happen and how? The one information source you can trust for this latest up-to-date business information is the Bob Pritchard Daily Newsletter. To receive it, simply go to my website, bobpritchard.com. That's bobpritchard.com and subscribe. It'll take you about 10 seconds. And the good thing about it is once you subscribe, if you decide you don't want to get the newsletter anymore and you'd be crazy if you did do that, but all you do is click the unsubscribe button on the newsletter and you will be gone instantly. We're not like some of those newsletters that you can't get off them no matter what you do. This one you can get out of really simply. Now, after the break, my guest is Keith Agoada. He's the co-founder and CEO of Producers Market. Now, this is really smart. They're using the blockchain to empower farmers with better distribution, better payment systems, um, and they provide in consumers with more transparency as to where the produce that they're eating came from. It's a really interesting technology. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with Keith in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com.
You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, where over the past nine years, giving you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people, and we talk about their interesting and exciting new initiatives. We talk to the entrepreneurs behind these projects about the services they provide, the challenges that they face, and we try to work out underneath it all what it is that drives them, what makes them tick, what is it that makes them special. Well, Keith Agoda is the co-founder and CEO of Producers Market, and uh, I've reached Keith in Florence, Italy. I mean, you know, it's pretty tough for some people. You know, we keep hearing about how tough all these entrepreneurs make it. I'm sure he's sitting in the square in Florence having a, a beverage of some, probably a Chianti, and uh, having a good time. So, you know, I used to feel sorry for an uh, entrepreneur losing that a bit. Now, Keith, Keith has worked in the supply side of the agricultural industry for the past decade. He's a founder of the commercial urban agriculture firm Sky Vegetables. And they pioneered the integration of greenhouse hydroponic agriculture in urban environments. Now, prior to his work with producers, Mark Keith spent four years on international procurement development with leading organic brands in the United States. He speaks four languages, English, Spanish, producer and buyer. He maintains on-the-ground relationships with leading growers, packers and processors globally and works every day to transform the industry to return more profits back to the farmers. And we all know how important that is. But what's really interesting about this is Keith's passion for supporting producers. Well, that was the inspiration behind Producers Market Platform. And he envisaged disrupting the $4 trillion dollar agricultural value chain industry by creating a world that is fully organic and using the blockchain to empower farmers with better payments and provide end consumers with more transparency to the source of production. Now, we all know the benefits that um, blockchain can bring in getting rid of the middlemen, um, making transactions extremely transparent and Agriculture seems like the perfect way to do it. We've been reading in the papers here over the past few days about the issues with um, with Mexico, with tomatoes and with um, avocados and other things. And it seems to me that um, something like this is desperately needed. So, hi, Keith. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right across the world. Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me. And thanks for that lovely introduction. And, um, you know, I will say that it is nice to be in Italy right now, but certainly uh, entrepreneurship is not as glamorous as it may look. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. <laughs> it, isn't, it isn't for most people, but I'm not sure about this one. Um, you were in a at a, a conference called Seeds and Chips in Milan um, over the last week. What was the what's the what what was the main thing you brought out of that conference? Yeah, it was really a wonderful event and got to meet other uh, innovative entrepreneurs transforming, you know, the agricultural value chain, finding ways to make it more efficient, more transparent. And, you know, I got to actually uh, have a one on one meeting with the former president of Nigeria, who's a farmer himself. And we got to speak about, you know, how important it is to find more direct markets for farmers 
and how um, so much of the industry sees digital technology and different tools like blockchain, but also more basic tools like smartphone applications and social media to be able to connect with the stories, with the value chains in order to create more direct relationships on a B2B and B2C uh, perspective and have the opportunity to create greater efficiencies, more transparency, and ultimately, as you mentioned, uh, more money for the farmers. That's ultimately what I think uh, drives farmers in the relationships is, you know, how do we get them more money and how do we pay them on time? Yeah, because farmers really get screwed, don't they? By the, the middlemen really mess up the industry. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's been kind of part of the structure for, for hundreds upon hundreds of years where the farmer takes the greatest risk. Um, not only are they paying labor and, you know, planting seeds and paying for fertilizers and doing the harvest, but they're also have the risk of the biological environment yeah. where they can't really control the sun or the rain every day. And so, you know, I think for the farmers and, and as a finance person, it's a very simple equation. There's risk and then there's reward. And the larger risk you take, the greater reward you should get. Yeah. And that certainly isn't the case. Do you get in your, before we get into exactly what you're doing, but do you, is there enormous pushback from the distributors and perhaps the um, um, retailers, the major retailers against um, the blockchain introduction, which will cut out the middleman? Correct. Well, it's a multi-layered, confusing, complex situation. On one hand, you have groups like Walmart, who after, you know, the romaine lettuce recall of last year and other, you know, recalls where they weren't able to uh, trace their produce back to the source and they had to throw out a lot of product and there's a lot of, uh, you know, consumers who were insecure and scared about their food quality because, you know, Walmart, like other retailers, didn't, couldn't track rapidly where their products were, were coming from. And it created a whole uh, issue with liability, with insurance, and of course, with recalls and having to throw out lots of products. So on one hand, you have uh, retailers like Walmart really pushing the industry into saying, we're going to use blockchain traceability and for walmart it's with uh, the ibm food trust who yep. we also are partnered with to say we want all of our providers of leafy greens and produce eventually to be on these traceability systems so that we can track all of our fresh produce to source so on a b2b level there's a lot of savings and also um quality assurance type of things that can be benefited from and many retailers uh, in the U.S. and globally are, are adopting it for that reason. Um, a second thing that's happening is the consumers. Uh, every day, more and more consumers are demanding from their retailers, from their CPGs, consumer product good brands, yep. that the sourcing is done in a way that is more sustainable, that has proper uh, payment to workers, that properly treats the environment, that the product itself, for example, might be non-GMO or certified organic or certified vegan and so on and so forth. So at the same time, you have consumers putting pressure up the value chain to have more 
transparency and traceability. I think where it gets a little confusing is a lot of the large buyers on the retail distribution CBG, CB, um, CPG side, sorry, it's confusing yeah. with CBD, but yeah. CPG side is that um, they aren't set up to go out there and start to you know, have employees at all the farms and go to small farmers and see how the operations are doing. They're just not set up for that type of procurement system. They are set up to be able to buy and then resell or buy and package and sell. And so it puts the onus on the producer. And now with the digital technology integration, we're hoping that the, you know, the large buyers around the world that maybe would like to, for business reasons, do transparent sourcing or be able to help more farmers and such can do so more efficiently with digital technology. And ultimately, the traders, the brokers, the groups between the you know, the growers and the end market, they're um, preventing transparency. And while some appreciate the service they provide connecting, uh, there's many others that see them as a kind of extractive force to the industry that limits transparency. Sure. So where did, where did you get your passion for agriculture? Were you brought up on a farm and spent your life picking radishes or something? Or how did, where did that come from? Well, great question. Well, I grew up uh, just outside Boston in a place called Chestnut Hill, um, Newton, Massachusetts. And I had a little forest in my backyard and I always loved going out and just playing in the dirt. And my, my mom would grow vegetables sometimes. But really, I think agribusiness really captured me when I was probably in second or third grade when I, I took a field trip to the cranberry bog. And I think same year we went to a maple syrup uh, farm and I was just blown away to see how people were working with nature, working with water, working with plants in order to create the food. I just thought it came from, you know, the cabinet or from the supermarket and and to have those experiences to go to farms just blew me away. And, um, you know, I had studied uh, management and, and, you know, looked at finance and such, but it was always too boring for me. I, I just loved the idea of like a biological living, you know, value chain and being able to innovate within it. So if you look at the population of the US, let's say it's 350 million for um, just for argument's sake, what percentage of those people really give a rat's ass where, they, where their product comes from? I know that, you know, there's, I'm, I'm, around, I'm around West Hollywood, so I can imagine that people in West Hollywood really want to know what farm it comes from. But people in Podunk, Iowa, probably don't give a rat's ass, do they? Uh, that's a very interesting comment. And I think there's pockets of people, even in places like Iowa or Montana or uh, Florida or wherever, that are getting more and more interested in this kind of local food movement or foodie or even organic. Organics become this mainstream word. It's been very commercialized. And I think as as someone starts to learn about food, they start asking questions and they start researching and the internet has an almost infinite number of resources to learn. And I think one of the questions you end up starting to ask is like, where did this uh, cereal or this head of lettuce or, you know, where did this ice cream, where did the milk, where did it come from? How did it get here? And in what way was it grown? And how does it uh, 
impact uh, the farmer, the place it was grown. So I think it's a level of curiosity. And to be frank, you know, most people look at price. You know, everyone wants to take care of their family. And I think organic historically was driven by moms looking out for their kids and their families. Yep. So I think that, you know, they're really concerned about food safety and food health and also price. And so getting to the next level of knowing exactly what pharma came from, I don't think the average or even more than average consumer really cares at this point. I think what's important is that the consumers can have trust in the products they're buying, especially if they're paying, let's say, a premium for a product that's organic or fair trade, um, or if it says local, or if it was supposed to be harvested yesterday and it's a fresh, you know, broccoli or, or whatever else that at least we should have the option or the availability of the information of the data to learn more and to have that truth if we want to uncover it. And I don't think it's about, you know, putting in front of everybody's face where everything came from and how it impact the environment. I mean, to me, that's just overblown and, and ridiculous and it's not going to achieve anything. I think the purpose is about as we um, as the evolution of the digital technology across the value chain uh, integrates into applications with smartphones, as the data aggregates and it becomes usable to tell stories, that this information isn't just available to, you know, Walmart or Whole Foods or Nestle or Unilever, but it also is made available to the end consumer who can learn more if they choose to. And that's where I think the cell phone is such a powerful tool where um, in the near future, consumers will be able to go down their aisle and with their phone and learn more about a product as they wish. That would that would be sensational. So you've got, um, I can imagine in, in countries like the US um, that it may be easier to implement sort of blockchain tracking or whatever the term is than it is, say, in Mexico, for example. Um, I always thought that California was the breadbasket of... Um, of America, but I, well, the food basket of America, but I'm beginning to think that Mexico's the, <laughs> the food basket of America. Is it harder in, in countries that are developing to, um, to implement any sort of technology? Very great question. Um, you know, you'd be, I think, a little bit surprised to see that in places like Mexico, Costa Rica, Colombia, there's a lot of farmers now that have smartphones yep. and that could use this technology. And especially, you know, it's a good point. Mexico is becoming an incredibly important supply source for the U.S., especially around fresh produce. Yep. And with fresh produce, a lot of it is moving into this system called Global Gap which requires some level of provenance or traceability, not digital, but just understanding where produce is coming from for a um, you know, food safety perspective. And so when it comes to the fresh value chain, I do feel it, it will become easier and easier to integrate you know, traceability on blockchain, let's say, as it gets integrated into an application form that's easy to use, that's efficient to use. I think where this technology could be even, I don't want to say more impactful, but has a really interesting impact is when we start looking at projects like in India, in Africa and Southeast Asia, where we're talking 
talking about groups that don't have smartphones that are very very small farmers let's say of cacao or of coffee or yep. uh, or of cassava or some grain and they bring it to either a trader or collector who just takes it from them then brings it to the processing facility or the farmer brings it to the processing facility at that point there's really no tracing to the source uh, oftentimes we don't know what the farmers are being paid we don't really know you know how much they've actually harvested what their credibility is and i think with this uh with the blockchain technology as well as distributed ledger technology and its its uses as essentially a sophisticated accounting system or an open accounting system we can start to use the aggregators so the co-ops the associations the packers the processors the groups that collect product from the small farmers or, or any size farmer and be able to start registering transactions uh, digitally for everything that comes in is sold so that we can start to create data sets and, and also the traceability of the products that are you know brought to the facility, but also the data sets of the farmers themselves. Mm. So where we have, you know, so many unbanked people in the rural world and in emerging markets, we can start creating unique data sets that allow them to start accessing microloans, finance, things to help them scale based upon their performance. And, you know, without that data, without that risk profile, that assessment, it becomes really difficult for these groups to gain loans, to be able to get their own assets. And so I think a big part of this technology is about the actual monetary transactions and the recording of contracts and transactions on open ledgers, not necessarily for a global public open consensus, but within a, a private network. I think there's a, a, a real power there to uh, support farmers around the world. And ultimately, uh, with this type of traceability and information, we can help uh, these groups now access uh, larger markets more directly and return money uh, back. So uh, when it comes to blockchain and, and distributed ledger technology, um, it's wide ranging, it's impact. And, and as many have noted, uh, agriculture and the agricultural value chain is going to be one of the first, I think, adopters of it. So I was thinking that um, does it really, it doesn't really cut out the middleman because I was just thinking you, you've got your farmer picking these heads of lettuce or whatever. And um, it's still got to be packed. It's still got to be moved from the farm to wherever. So you're still going to have those middlemen in there, aren't you? So does it really get somebody out or does it really just trace the product? Very good question. And we don't look at middleman as a bad word. And, and we're relatively agnostic to how each value chain comes together. And the technology itself doesn't require removing anyone. And we don't look at a packer or processor as a intermediary or middleman, because they're ultimately adding value to raw materials to make them uh, marketable or commercialized into a domestic and global marketplace. Um, where we see this technology uh, having an impact on, let's say, making the value chain more efficient, i.e. maybe removing intermediaries or limiting them, is this opportunity to basically put more visibility 
on where products are coming from, uh, the value chains it moves in, so that we can start to look at more direct purchasing and more direct purchasing contracts. So um, let's say a major retailer, let's say Kroger, you know, wants to uh, source directly coffee from Guatemala. And right now they work through a trader in Texas who essentially is buying from a facility who buys from the farmers and then they're selling it to Kroger from this kind of trader or broker who just uses, let's say, warehouses for physical movement of product. And their only goal really is to buy as low as possible and sell as high as possible in many cases. Yeah. Right. And this is the service they're essentially providing. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And it's not to, again, demonize it or say, uh, this is horrible practice. This is just the way the global value chain has worked for for as long as there's probably been agriculture, right? It's a uh, market forces of the people in the middle connecting the producer to the market, buy low and they sell high. And what we're saying is, how can we transform this system as much as we can in order to just saying, uh, how do more stability, you know, less of the speculation of markets, of seasons, of how materials or prices are going to move up and down based upon what's happening in Russia or what's happening with um, a storm in Argentina or and so on and so forth and start to look at creating more sanity. Because when the producer knows that they have a set contract for a set amount of harvest at a set price, they can start planning out seasons. They can start focusing more energy on growing and creating a great product instead of working with lots of different traders and brokers and trying to play the market to get the best possible price. So really it's about utilizing this technology to bring more transparency, which in turn brings more trust. And with that trust, we can start to create more direct contract and future and forward contract relationships so that we can move this industry to more sanity and less of this kind of third-party speculation between buyer and seller. I, I don't know much about um, greens and that sort of product, but listening to farmers that produce, say, eggs or milk or things like that, all I ever hear is that the middlemen are making all the money. And that, you know, a farmer's getting 10 cents a litre for his milk and their supermarkets are selling it for $3 or something. So isn't it, isn't it true that the middlemen are making most of the money? Well, the intermediaries are making most of the money. And how the hell do you say to somebody, well, we've got this great plan and one of the things we're going to do is you're going to make less money. I can see them being thrilled about that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a great point you're hitting on, Bob, and... And I think each value chain is unique and and it is an unfortunate truth that again the farmers are taking the risk and oftentimes the intermediaries are um, you know, my experience working in the value chain, you know, everyone is concerned with their margin, right? The distributor sure. says I need to hit my twenty percent margin. The retailer says, I need to hit my forty percent margin. And then you go to the farm and they go, What's the margin? Right? <laughs> exactly. So they're not looking at their farm many times as a business and they're just basically subject to whoever the buyer is that they have contact to in the local area. Part of what we're building with our marketplace and with our platform is to onboard a, a producer 
And instead of looking at each farmer as a commodity selling into a whole commoditized system, how do we start to look at each farmer, each producer as their own story? And give them their own profile and help them share their stories, their photos, their videos, their content, their social media, and and get that out to a broader market globally. So now they can start to attract buyers outside of their current channels. And, you know, there's, for example, there's over 80 to 90 food expos around the world each year that we've identified as a as a really interesting target for groups that export you know food products to the world uh, now let's say you take your farmer in california or your coffee company in colombia how many of those 90 events are they attending each year maybe three or four max and so they're really limited to their network that they have already established or that they've built over the years in order to sell their outputs. But with digital marketing, digital technology, and with authenticity that they are who they say they are, they are the source, they are the producer, we're envisioning a a immediate future where they're going to open up lots of new buyer leads from around the world who are looking for them and looking for their products. And by diversifying their sales channels, perhaps we can start to give them more uh, supplier power, more negotiating power on their outputs. So thinking about this, doesn't it really work for the big guys, like in California, Sun Growers or whatever their name are, name is that um, grow, you know, ninety percent of the world's carrots or whatever they grow. Um, doesn't it work much better for them where they've got the muscle to be able to trot around the world and sell their story than it does for Fred Smith, farmer who's got you know two thousand acres in the middle of somewhere, who, you know, his biggest problem is trying to feed his kids. Um, how does how does he take advantage of this? Yeah, it's a great point. And you know, you know, the large carrot grower, I know one of them, Grimway Farms, you know, and these uh, you know, really large companies like Driscoll, who you guys probably buy some of your berries from, um, these groups have international marketing offices, right? They have offices all over the world, Dole, Chiquita, yeah. you know, Foxy. These, these groups have sales reps around their countries, around the world, that are already kind of connecting into a lot of markets directly and working through sales reps and, and certain uh, distributors in order to get their products out. But to your point, the, let's say, smaller or less organized groups that maybe their marketing office consists of, you know, the lady in the office who's also the office manager, or maybe they've outsourced their marketing materials to someone. So they have a brand and a website, but they haven't updated it in 15 years. And so what we're really looking to do with our platform is to support that mid or even small size grower by allowing them to come onto our platform, create a profile, connect into these digital marketing tools, connect into the traceability tools we're building in right now uh, with the IBM Food Trust, and be able to access markets more directly as if they were a foxy or a grimway or an earthbound farms right that they can take advantage of this digital you know member network that we're building and be able to have that power as if they were part of a large you know group that gives them that type of market access but doing so uh without the cost yeah yeah because you know it seems to me the big guys have got 
the muscle. They've got lobbyists. They've got Christ knows what else that can that are really working about increasing their profit. They're not worried about the the farmers particularly. They're worried about um, increasing the profit in the middle. You know, I often hear people say, you know, the quickest way to go broke is to get a big order from somebody like Costco because they'll screw you down to the absolute lowest price possible. Um, they don't care whether you make a profit or not. If you disappear next week, that's bad luck. Um, how, do, how do you deal with those sort of massive buyers or don't you? Is that just... Yes, it's, these are systemic problems. And I think what we're really looking to do is open up as many options, A, B, C grade options for all outputs domestically, globally, by just putting everyone onto the map, bringing as many right. users purchasers as many farming users producer users onto our platform and consumers onto our platform of the social media even though we are a b2b site so i'll give you an example that is really heartbreaking that i've had to see firsthand and live uh you know in the produce industry let's say let's use the mexico example you're a grower of mangoes in mexico and you get an order from a group in rotterdam in the in the netherlands and it's a container of, you know, uh, 1,800 boxes of um, of Tommy Atkins mangoes, and you got to send them out there. So you send them, and when they arrive, the buyer there sends back a photo of one mango that has black dots on it and says, okay, you know, I need a 20% discount. Check out this photo. And you're the farmer, and you're like, holy gosh. Like, first of all, I can't just go and fly – to Rotterdam today to check out and make sure that I'm not getting screwed here. Um, secondly, um, right now, if they reject my container, now I'm stuck with 1,800 boxes of mangoes in Rotterdam that I might have to now throw out, even though I've paid for all the you know, yeah, harvest pack yeah. boxes, shipment, everything, insurance, customs broker, whatever else it took to get it there. And now you're pretty much like, well, I kind of just have to accept it. And even though this buyer may or may not be honest, how can they tell me it's a 20% discount on everything and taking a photo of one mango that has some black dots on it? Yeah. Right. And, and because it's um, this is the situation, the farmers oftentimes have to just accept it. Right. Yep. Because they don't have people who are there to go right to the office and check and make sure they're not getting screwed or don't have other groups that they can go to right on the spot and say, hey, this group's kind of giving us a hard time with our mangoes. Will you take this at a five percent discount yep. or 10 percent discount? Right. And so right now the grower is pretty much at a you know loss of negotiating power and a loss of kind of supply chain power where maybe they got 50 percent down, you know, in the U.S. example you know it's usually zero percent down and then it's like 30 days or 45 days terms before yeah. they're even paid and so there are these situations where where farmers have been made to look at themselves as competition so i'm a mango grower in mexico and you're a mango grower in mexico now we're competition because we're both trying to sell the safe way yeah. right but yeah. in reality there's plenty of people who want to eat these mangoes yeah Right. And the less farmers are looking at themselves as competition to each other and more they're looking at themselves as part of the same you know, side of the supply chain equation, they can start to actually 
you know, work together through different platforms, through networks in order to access markets, in order to have a stronger network so that they're not getting taken advantage of as much. And the solution isn't overnight, but the more that farmers are working together and the more that there's transparency and there's more options of buyers, the more it's going to flip in the, you know, the profit equation for the farmers. We're running really short of time, but three quick questions. Um, Are you just into agricultural products or are you going to look at things that moo, cluck and grunt? Yeah, great question. So we um, are right now exploring, for example, forestry, sustainable forestry, because for marketplace technology and our marketplace application, uh, all these raw material value chains, it functions pretty much the same uh, from a technological standpoint. So we're looking at forestry with the major group in Brazil to start testing, uh, seafood, and also looking at cattle and uh, you know chicken and other uh, poultry and meat as well. So we're really looking at all agricultural value chains. Okay. Um, last question. I'm a, I'm a big crypto fan, as you, as you may know. Um, how do you see crypto being used in the um, agricultural value chain? Amazing question. Thank you for asking it. I see two ways. One is is short-term, one is kind of long-term. The short-term is the uh, tokenization of assets. So I believe there's lots of people around the world that want to own part of a forest or part of an organic farm, or I'm here in Italy, maybe they want to own part of a 100-year-old olive oil operation. And there's going to be this immediate opportunity that we're looking at too as a company to uh, tokenize assets and be able to distribute these uh, digital securities or security tokens to uh, crowdfund or liquidate some of these agricultural value chain assets. And uh, I believe that's going to be, you know, in the next 12 months, we're going to start to see more and more projects pop up where someone who's in uh, England can go out there and buy some of a mango farm in Panama or olive oil operation in Italy for as low as a $500 or $50 investment. Uh, so I see the, the security tokens and the digitization and securitization of these assets around the value chain as an immediate future. I believe in the long term, the real exciting thing is when farmers and the input suppliers, the people who buy from farmers are all using a cryptocurrency based on their cell phone in order to do the contracts and transactions and the movement of value, the currency, right? The current that goes between these different uh, parts of the supply chain and using instead of a fiat currency, instead of a normal banking system, which is clunky, which costs a lot, which has delays and so on and so forth, that we can move into a system that, you know, transactions are almost free and the time it takes to transact is almost one second. Yeah. And I believe that's going to be uh, a major transformation of the whole industry, but that's long-term because I do not see 
farmers anywhere starting to like start sending each other Ethereum or Bitcoin or anything like that. I think that's totally not going to happen anytime soon. But I do think it's going to start to happen in emerging markets. You know, you see in Kenya, places, um, you know, like Venezuela, where it's starting to look like cryptocurrency has this utilitarian use for transaction because of the instability of the fiat currency in these countries. I believe there's a, a, a shorter window that they'll start to use crypto. But in terms of you know the industry going off the US dollar or the euro or the Mexican peso, that's going to take some time. But I'm excited for that to happen for sure. I, I think it's going to take less time than you think it is. I, I'm, I'm a great believer. Keith, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I'm sorry to disturb you um, having a drink in, um, in Florence. I really feel, feel sorry for you. Um, now, if you want to contact Keith and find out more about Producers Market, go to ProducersMarket.com. That's Producers, P-R-O-D-U-C-E-R-S, Market.com. I could continue with this conversation for ages because it's really interesting to me. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the 423rd edition of the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Absolutely No Bullshit Business Radio Show coming at you on Voice America Business Network. And today we're broadcasting from Charleston in South Carolina, which is the hub of Southern Charm and Hospitality, a beautiful city. If you haven't been here, you should put it on your bucket list. It's fabulous. Um, Now, this program, as you probably know, if you've been listening to us for the last nine years, uh, is a great supporter of entrepreneurs. And I think this is a terrific story. Every major supermarket devotes at least one entire aisle to freezer space. And frequently, they've got two. Uh, my local uh, store, supermarket um, in Hollywood, has four aisles of freezer space. And there's a good reason for this. The frozen, frozen food sector, it's a 22, sorry, it's a $220 billion global industry. And in 2018, over the last 12 months, frozen food saw a 2.6 sales growth, where fresh food only saw a 1% growth. So frozen food's growing at two and a half times faster than fresh food, which is pretty sad, but it's true. The 20th century innovation that launched the global frozen foods industry, I reckon this is one of the great advancements of modern civilization. Now, the industry's chief pioneer is a household name, but I don't think most people realise it. I didn't realise it until the other day. Clarence Birdseye was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1886. 
in the midst of America's technological revolution. That's when railroads came about, steel production commenced, uh, the telephone, electricity. It was a really exciting period in America's technology revolution. Now, Clarence, he was an entrepreneur throughout his youth. He found all sorts of unique ways to make money when he was 17, and he had all sorts of harebrained schemes. He made a lot of money. Now, he enrolled at Amherst College in Massachusetts, but his family fell on hard times, so he had to drop out of college. In 1912, he moved to Labrador, which is, if you know it, a remote, inhospitably cold region in eastern Canada. It is freezing. So Birdseye noticed that as soon as a fish was pulled out from under the ice, it would immediately freeze in the air, which was at minus 40 degrees. So the, the fish would then be packed in snow outdoors and it tasted perfectly fresh when thawed out. So this is, that, that's really unique. So it just it didn't have any other freezing apart from the snow and it tasted great. So back in New York, the preservation technique was to freeze food very slowly over a period of days at temperatures just below the freezing point. And when this food thawed out, it was grainy, it was soggy, and it was prone to rot. So in 1917, Birdseye returned to the US and joined the US Fisheries Association, whose focus was to figure out better freezing methods. He realised that the grainy texture of US frozen fish was a result of how the meat was frozen. Slow freezing formed crystals, um, which um, formed much smaller damaging crystals that um, maintained freshness. So in 1922, he left his job. He rented out space in an ice cream factory and went all in to find a solution. Birdseye rose $20,000 back then, which is $300,000 today, and he launched Birdseye Seafoods with the promise of revolutionising frozen food. The company ran out of money in 1924, and uh, Birdseye relocated to Gloucester, Massachusetts, which is a city with a thriving fishing industry. Here he raised an enormous $375,000, which is $5.6 million today, and launched General Seafood Corporation. Not long afterwards, he had a major breakthrough by placing food inside two-inch-thick insulated cartons and pressing them between hollowed-out metal plates. He could um, fast-freeze the contents and better preserve freshness. Soon the plates were swapped for chilled belts and a whole bunch of other innovations that um, enabled high-quality frozen food for the first time. Now, you think about this, we can now freeze food, but we didn't have uh, freezer cars in trains or in trucks. Warehouses weren't cold enough to store it, and uh, retailers had no visible way to stock it or put it on shelves. So in 1928, the storefront freezer was invented, and Birdseye paid for the $1,500 machines to be installed in supermarkets all over the place. He pressured DuPont to make a waterproof cellophane and set out to realign the poor perception of frozen foods with marketing that spoke of just from the ocean flavour. Within two years, 
General Seafood Corporation expanded into 27 products, fish and berries, right the way through to frozen peas, which I'm sure we're all familiar with. In 1929, what is now post-consumer brands, bought out Birdseye for $23.5 million, which is the equivalent of $350 million today. And then the rise of supermarkets in the 30s and 40s led to better frozen food supply chains and wider in-store availability. Now, between 1930 and 1945, US frozen foods grew tenfold. So by 1950, frozen food was a $1 billion a year industry. When Birdseye died at 69, it had 168 frozen food-related patents to his name. I think that's a great story. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Get out of the road. Let somebody who wants to succeed get past you. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Any bastard can do the ordinary. Ordinary's easy. Normal's easy. Normal's boring. Just walk down the street and you'll see thousands and thousands of boring people. In the meanwhile, I hope you have a great week. Continue to be successful because the alternative to success is what? It's failure. And guess what? Failure really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard broadcasting today from Charleston in South Carolina, and I'll be back in Los Angeles again next week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.